This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Jamie McLeod Skinner, Democratic nominee for Congress in Oregon 2nd. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for the opportunity to be on your show. Yeah, it's our pleasure. So full disclosure to our listeners, Jamie is a Run With Pride candidate. I serve as National Comms Director at Run With Pride, but hopefully I'll be just as tough on her as I am with anyone else. With that being said, let's start out with a pretty easy question. What inspired you to run for Congress? Well, uh, our country is headed in a direction that I don't really recognize right now and I'm not very proud of. We have a tremendous need in our country. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be fixed in Washington, D.C., and, and I think both parties have fallen short to a certain degree. So it's getting the focus back on the basics. But in my district, the thing that really prompted me to, to get involved was uh, our current representative, his attack on health care and not covering folks with pre-existing conditions, and also, quite frankly, not addressing a lot of the issues that are critically important in my district. Almost half the folks in, in my congressional district are live at or near the poverty line, and he just doesn't seem to see it, doesn't seem to get it, and those are issues that need to be addressed. So in terms of health care, what kind of system do you support? So I have made a, a habit of talking about ideas, big picture ideas, and because I find that when we start talking about the buzzwords, that breaks down the conversations that I think we really need to have to get to to um, to accomplish moving forward on providing healthcare to everyone. So the the ideas that I talk about is that everyone should have access to a full range of physical and mental health care, both financial accessibility, but also physical proximity. Because a lot of my district is rural, and a lot of folks in my district struggle with having physical proximity and access to their um, health care professionals. So it's everyone having access to a full range of physical and mental health care. The second thing is managing costs. And there are there are ways that we can go about saving almost 25% of our current costs and, and per, be able to use that money to provide care to more people. Um, care for the caregiver, uh, the quality of care, covering pre-existing conditions, and also uh, focusing on preventative care are some of those big picture ideas. Then it's a matter of, uh, first of all, getting consensus around those big picture ideas. And I found in my district that folks across the political spectrum think those are good ideas and want those kind of ideas for their families. And after that, it's developing consensus with policymakers and bringing the experts into the room to tell us how to accomplish those things. There are some systems that are out there that we should be learning from and emulating, including systems we have in place already for some folks in our country. But developing uh, an overarching system that helps to address those costs. And then also, A model um, that I think works well is consolidation of the insurance companies. That can also be used then to negotiate with the big pharmaceutical companies, which um, it's uh, right now those big pharma 
is driving up costs. They're hurting us. They fueled the opioid, the opioid epidemic. And um, in my case specifically, I'm running against uh, the person who's the number one recipient from corporate PAC money from the big pharmaceutical companies uh, in the House of Representatives. So could you give us a little more information about your incumbent? What makes you a better representative for your district? Sure. Um, He's been there for 20 years. And I'll actually say that I think when he first got in, he was doing a pretty good job. He was doing the basics of showing up and listening and working across the aisle. Um, Now he talks about that, but he's not actually doing it. Um, He doesn't hold open town halls, uh, hasn't for almost a year and a half. There have been a couple times where people have gotten notification the night before and he'll hold an early morning um, meeting, but he's afraid of meeting with um, his constituents at this point. Um, He's also, he's the top recipient of corporate PAC dollars in several different categories, um, either the top or among the top. And that's everything from big pharma, from the telecom industry. He does not support net neutrality. Um, He also, um, a major uh, fundraiser from fossil fuel industry. So his focus is on fossil fuels, not on, um, uh, on renewable energy, which is a great opportunity in our district. And so he's, He's now changed over time. I actually have folks who are supporting my candidacy who used to support him that say, you know, he's the, the, the Greg Walden of 20 years ago would vote against the Greg Walden of today because he's changed so much. So not showing up, not addressing the issues of our district. And also, you know, it's kind of the follow the money piece that's really, um, really turned around, changed things for him. In in our case, we've got a very grassroots fueled campaign. We've got over 2,600 volunteers. We've now raised over a million dollars, most of it in district. The average donation under a hundred bucks, um, and, and no corporate PAC money. And so we've really built up this grassroots campaign to um, to replace him. And with great respect for his previous uh, previous public service to um, replace him with someone who shows up, listens, and addresses the issues of our district. So in terms of showing up, what would you do as a member of Congress to stay connected to your district? Are you making a town hall pledge? Yeah. So uh, my district includes 20 counties, and I've pledged to have a town hall in every county every year. Um, In the past 16 months, I've put um, over 40,000 miles. I think I'm up to almost 44,000 miles on my Jeep traveling around the district, meeting with folks, um, you know, seniors, students, um, town halls, having meet and greets in libraries, just really um, throughout the district and uh, meeting with folks of Chamber of Commerce, uh, uh, chatting with folks, listening to folks from all walks of life and really getting their input on their their hopes and dreams and, and crafting that into policy, into message, And then also making sure that the focus that I have is really on addressing their needs. That's something I've done in the past 16 months, and it will be something that I will um, work into my schedule going forward to make sure I stay in touch with those that I will serve. And in terms of corporate influence, what reforms do you think are necessary to ensure that it is the people and not just the powerful who are empowered by our political system? 
This is such a huge problem right now, and we're seeing decision making being driven by uh, you know major corporations and the super wealthy. So you know, I, I think a, um, a a great a great act would be to um, uh, be able to to turn the tide and uh, overturn Citizens United, although that will be a huge effort. Um, but that is one of the things that I think would be helpful. Uh, also, bringing in um, even smaller levels of reform, so making sure there's full disclosure, that there's a requirement for full disclosure. There are a lot of uh, current PACs that are out there that, um, you know, like the NRA, for example, who people can donate to, and you can't find out who's donated to those PACs. So making sure that folks are aware that everyone has access to information on who's contributing to campaigns, including PACs. Um, there's opportunities to create um, incentives for voluntary spending caps. So those can be some of the interim measures. But on some of the bigger areas as well, I mentioned healthcare. If we were to consolidate the insurance uh, company into one, that would allow a much stronger negotiating point for the pharmaceutical companies. Um, so that is part of the healthcare reform would be one way to be able to negotiate with big pharma and make sure that they can't uh, just charge whatever they want to charge for life-saving drugs. And looking at your incumbent, he votes overwhelmingly, almost unanimously with Donald Trump. What would you do as a member of Congress to ensure that Congress is a co-equal branch of government that can hold the executive branch accountable? He actually votes 99% of the time with the president. And uh, I will say, whoever is president now or in the future as well, um, if the president does something that's good for our country and for my constituents, I will support him or her. Uh, but if the president is doing something that is harmful for my constituents and harmful for our country, then I think holding the president accountable is part of your responsibility as a member of Congress. Um, that's where not just my representative, but many representatives are falling short right now. So that accountability, that balance of power is critically important for the health of our democracy. Um, I will uh, uh, better utilize and encourage my colleagues to more, um, more formally and forcefully uh, uh, recognize the, the authorities that's provided by our constitution for Congress to be a co-equal um, member of, of our government and be able to hold the president accountable in terms of some of the activities. I also think that, um, you know, things like this, this tariff war that we're in right now, this is decimating the ag, uh, the, the farmers and ranchers or farmers, especially in my district. And so pushing back on the president, foreign policy is, um, is part of the executive branch, but if there are steps that are being taken that are harmful or dangerous to our country, then I think Congress can step forward and more, um, more assertively um, establish checks and balances. You know, I, there are folks who talk about um, impeachment of the president. Um, my focus is on uh, getting government to focus on the basics again, on healthcare, education, economic development. Uh, if, but it, it would be in the House of Representatives that that process would start. And if there's a push to do that, it would be my commitment to make sure that due process is provided. And that's true of this president. That would be true of any president, because 
part of the health of our democracy is a is a, is a democracy that functions um, according to our rule book, the Constitution, and in great diligence of those responsibilities. And we've gotten off track with that, and I would be committed to to putting that back on track. So you mentioned foreign policy. That's something Democrats are criticized for not really taking any positions on. What is your foreign policy perspective? Well, this was shaped, um, first of all, early in my childhood. I was born actually in Wisconsin. My mom's a retired teacher, but when I was a a young girl, she took a teaching job over in East Africa, and I lived there for a handful of years. And so got a perspective on how uh, both how big and how small our world really is. Um, and there was a lot of stuff going on politically at the time. Um, some of my classmates were refugees. Those experiences had an impact on me. And then after uh, graduating from high school in Southern Oregon and um, finishing my first two degrees in engineering and planning, I began my public service, my commitment to public service by uh, taking a job in in Bosnia and Kosovo, the, the war had just ended the, in the Balkans, the, in the former Yugoslavia, and my job was to repair schools and hospitals in Bosnia and then go on to design water and sanitation systems in Kosovo. That post-war experience had a real impact on me because I got to see both how important it is to protect our form of government and our democracy, how conflict can arise and really dismantle countries. Uh, but also that sense of being working as part of the international community to um, help um, ha- help other nations uh, have healthy functioning governments, and and um, it's not about going in and uh, hands-on nation building for other countries, but it's being an active part of the international community. I think where I would serve in Congress, it would be making sure we're investing and providing resources for our State Department, because I believe diplomacy is the first line of defense, if you will. Um, When necessary, the world can be a dangerous place to to make sure that our troops have the resources they need, but always to have diplomacy be the first first focus. And then also um, to make sure we're developing the strong partnerships for trade, as part of our economic development, the trade relationships are critically important. And we're seeing problems right now with the tariff war. We're seeing problems in my district because wheat farmers are not, um, they're losing their markets, their overseas markets. And about 85% of our product is sold overseas. And those markets are being closed down with the tariff war right now. And so those relationships are part of our strong economy, part of the safety of our country and other countries as well, because we are uh, influenced and impacted by by those in the world around us. And so being both a part of the international community, but also um, knowing how to maintain that balance is is key to um, to the focus on on taking care of things back home, but also making sure that we're part of a, a safer and healthier world. So I'm sure you're aware that most of our spending, a disproportionate amount of spending on our military, and there isn't much balance in terms of who controls it. It's the executive. I'm curious as to what you think about current levels of military spending, especially given how little spending is given to diplomacy and your emphasis on that. Diplomacy, but also um, taking care of issues back home. If you want to talk about national security, let's talk about some of the basic things we need to do, um, you know, in, 
in our country. So last year, the um, more money was allocated to the military than even the, the Joint Chiefs requested, uh, which does not make sense. Um, we, I believe now, have an overallocation of, of our resources to the military. Part of that is, um, is, is a focus of this White House on trying to, to uh, maximize those numbers. We have too much need here at home, I believe, to, to uh, allocate that, that much money, especially when it's not needed for our basic defense. Um, and so striking that balance of priorities, of course, we, we need a military to, to protect our country and they need to be sufficiently uh, resourced so they can do their job. We uh, also, quite frankly, need to be taking better care of our veterans who have served us when they come home. Um, and we need to the to the point we both made to uh, fully resource our our diplomatic core. So it starts first with diplomacy, um, then as if needed, uh, military involvement. Um, I will say one thing that the the our current president said when he was running for office was a focus on other countries who could afford it paying their fair share in terms of um, and in areas like NATO and in other national security efforts. And I actually agree with them on that point. We should not be subsidizing um, protection security for, for other countries that can afford it. We should be investing in not just our own security, but security and stability of, um, of the international community. That makes sense, again, leading with diplomacy, but we should not be paying, uh, when we have as great a need as we have here at home, we should not be subsidizing other countries who can afford um, some of their own, you know, to, to protect their own their own countries. We have, looking back home, looking inward, we have homeless veterans. We have, uh, in my district, almost half the people are living at or near the poverty line. We need desperately some basic investments in our infrastructure uh, to help grow our economy. We need to... Um, modify and correct our healthcare system because that will help our economy as well. Um, we also need to make more investments in education, uh, both early childhood education, uh, IDEA, so kids with developmental disabilities get access to a level playing field. And then something else I've been talking about a lot is um, an exchange of public service for college education or trade school so that um, you know younger folks can get access to continuing education or the trades without having to incur crippling debt. Um, those are, I, I bring it up in the context of national security because those investments are key to long-term security of our country. Looking at what you mentioned regarding democracy, both here and abroad, I'm curious as to what you think about President Trump's veiled threats at regime change in Venezuela and overall the United States' history of interference in democratic elections as well as nations and people's right to self-determine their government. Yeah, um, under this administration, and quite frankly, under many past administrations, this has been an issue of the U.S. Uh, overstepping and in trying to engage in, in regime change. You know, part of that is controlled, uh, can be, um, or should be, is controlled by Congress because Congress holds the purse strings. So I think Congress, you know, the, obviously the executive branch takes a lead on foreign policy, but 
Congress can be more assertive, and I believe should be more assertive, in um, in not funding some of those those activities and some of those threats. Uh, we have, in in my lifetime, in my memory, an unprecedented a, a president who is is saying and doing things that no one would have conceived of before. Um, and right now, the only checks on that, potential checks is through Congress. And we're not seeing this Congress um, take on that responsibility. And that's one of the reasons why I believe we need we need um, some major change this November. And there's an opportunity for voters to make that change uh, so that there can be greater accountability. Um, elections do have consequences, and that's both for the president. Um, and it's, But it, we have an opportunity this November to make a positive change, um, bring back a balance to Congress. And for me, it's not at all a red versus blue or even Republican versus Democrat. When we're talking about foreign policy, when we're talking about basic investments and stability of our economy, these issues uh, go beyond party affiliation. Um, and I'll say I'm a identify as a rural Democrat. I'm uh, proudly uh, endorsed and supported by not just the Democratic Party of Oregon, but also the Independent Party of Oregon and the Working Families Party. And that coalition approach is, I think, critically important for better governance and more accountable government. So looking at a specific policy, do you support repealing the AUMF? I have not taken a um, policy stance on that. And what are your thoughts on, given what's going on in Yemen, the United States providing foreign aid to Saudi Arabia? Well, um, what's going on right now in the discussion of what happened to the journalists um, is a a very, um, you know, it lends itself to a very serious discussion. Um, I, you know, I think our involvement and support of other government governments, as well as our um, both uh, buying oil from them and uh, providing arms, is um, of great concern when there is when there are questionable uh, and very serious things that that are being done. Um, so I think I think some of these activities with the Saudi government should frankly be put on hold until there's some resolution on uh, both what happened to and who's responsible for the the death. And it now sounds like it was a gruesome death for uh, this uh, journalist. Um, I, I think we do need to maintain a standard in terms of not just who um, who uh, who's appointed to lifetime positions in decision-making roles within our country, but also um, in working and um, uh, foreign trade and foreign engagement um, with other countries. There, there is a standard that we should maintain, I believe, and I'm not... Um, and there are very serious questions right now about the Saudi government's role in, um, in, in the murder of a journalist. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, millennial politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com 
slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So looking back at domestic issues, one that is of top concern to our listeners is education and especially the affordability of public education. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, so a lot of, uh, I so my mom's a retired teacher. She's a public school teacher. I am a, a big fan of our uh, public education system, both for um, providing opportunities for young folks to come together, to learn together, um, and to get a, a great start at life. Uh, most of K through 12 is focused on um, uh, uh, the, the resources are provided by the state. Uh, but where I think the federal government can step in is to uh, provide better funding for early childhood education. We know that children's minds are formed in the first couple of years. And um, making sure that kids, especially in less advantaged communities, have access to the resources they need to to uh, get a fuller development and get, get support during that time, I think is critically important. Also, um, funding for IDEA, so uh, kids were struggling with um, uh, disabilities, developmental or physical disabilities. This is especially tough in rural communities. So we have a law we've identified national policy that says, yes, we should make these investments and yes, there's need, but we're not fully funding it. So providing the resources, um, providing, prioritizing those, those uh, resources. And then for uh, post high school, and in my district, less than half of high school students go on to uh, continuing education. So making sure that students have access to um, you know, continuing education to a college degree to the trades is important. And that's why I propose an exchange of uh, public service for college education or trade school. It not only provides access to uh, continuing education for students without having to, to go into debt, um, it also is a resource for our um, disadvantaged communities, especially our rural communities, who are in need of doctors and teachers and nurses and and skilled professions. So when students would go through and get their degree, then the, the, the public service piece would be working in a community that needed their skills for a period of time. It would not only give them access to a degree, it would give them a work experience, and, um, and they could then do that without, without going into debt. And what are your thoughts on debt-free education proposals? For example, Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii recently proposed a debt-free education plan that aims to address housing and food insecurity. So if you are familiar, what are your thoughts? If not, what are your thoughts on the basic principles behind it? Yeah, I'm not familiar with the specifics of that legislation. 
but when I think of um, you know going to college, it's it's tuition, it's also your basic living expenses. Um, you know, you can't. It's it's not just about tuition. It's there's fees, there's books, there's other expenses as well, and so providing um, an opportunity for for students to have access to be able to to go to 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 um, either trade school or college to get a degree. Um, you really need to be looking at a fuller package, and and so I I see it as as part of a fuller package. Um, in in you know work study is part of it. That's you know my my folks couldn't afford to send me to off to college, so I had to um, rely on a combination of of um, loans and, and scholarships and grants and things like that for, to get my degrees. Um, but some of those are no longer available to students and. Um, the opportunities have changed over time. And so making sure that those type of opportunities are still available is critically important. I, I do believe that you need to put some skin in the game. So that's either the public service balance or, you know, working while you're in school. Some of those types of things I think are, are a fair ask to 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 provide those opportunities those um, for uh, learning opportunities. But I do think we need to, as a investment in our country, investment in our future, we need to make sure that students do have access and can afford not just uh, tuition, but but that whole package of what it costs to actually um, you know, to, uh, go to school and get a continuing education. And you mentioned expanding opportunities for disabled students, uh, especially given that they aren't necessarily able to meet work requirements that are often required for education, as well as programs like Medicaid. Could you expand upon that a little bit more and how you would, in general, hope to support the disabled community? Yeah, um, in when I was, the IDEA program is is more for, um, that I was looking at is, is more for uh, younger students starting out, but make, you know, I, I read a great book once that referred to, uh, this is around physical disability for folks who don't identify as having physical disabilities as TAPs, that is temporarily able persons. And I think that we're often, there's so much misconception about um, disability. I also, when I was in high school, I um, uh, volunteered and worked, I was in integrated school and um helped out as a teaching assistant uh, in a classroom with students with developmental disabilities. And, I, you know, I'm so grateful for that experience because I learned a lot. I don't know the, the young woman I worked with. I don't know if, if I uh, provided any, any benefit to her, but I learned a tremendous amount from her and learned a lot about my own uh, misconceptions and biases, um, at, you know, as a young person. And so I, I really came to see their, are tremendous um, skills and gifts and opportunities that we gain from 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 the wide spectrum of folks we have in our communities. And so, making sure there's safe space, making sure there's opportunities for folks who um, you know may see the world differently, may experience the world differently, is critically important. And you know the 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 thing of the comment of of putting some skin in the game. You know, there's things that we can all um, provide there's values that we can add to our communities, um, and I think with based on the individuals and person involved, it can um, it can be seen and and considered differently. There's there's some folks who can do certain things, and and others who cannot do those things. So we shouldn't have a cookie cutter approach to to what resources what people need to do to to step up and and help out. 
But I, I also think that um, there are uh, tremendous gifts and skills that that folks have that we just need to have a better sense of how to see that and and how to bring that value added in. Um, and so, you know, um, making sure that that resources are available cr- across the board is is the first step. And then, um, as you know, as folks are able to provide resources or if they're not, then that's something that, that we look at and make a decision that it's there's still a value added in terms of having a fuller and, and richer community because of it. Um, and so, you know, ability to to um, to engage or ability to, to serve in a certain role or ability to give back would be measured based on someone's um, or, or the expe- expectation to give back to, to give back or to serve would be uh, balanced with someone's ability to do so. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. And we hope to have you again after you win in November. All right, I look forward to it. So lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8pm Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.